have your Bibles, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we'll be considering verses 11 through 16 tonight. This is on page 558 of the Pew Bibles. And if you would, please um, stand for the reading of, of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 11 through 16. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. This is God's word. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening seeking to hear from you, and we ask that you would speak to us by your Spirit through your Word, that you would soften our hard hearts and unstop our ears and give us eyes to see. We ask that Jesus Christ would be exalted and that your Spirit would work in a mighty way this evening. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Ecclesiastes is, in my judgment, one of, if not the most uh, neglected books of the Scriptures. And there is reason for this. One of the reasons is just the sheer um, unknowability sometimes of it. If you, read, you can read five different commentators and they'll all have five different interpretations of what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to do. And one of the uh, things that you will do if you happen to read through the book, you'll pick up on these key phrases. Um, One of those phrases is, the same event happens to them all. We'll note this in just a few moments. But the other is this that we're going to consider this evening, and that is life under the sun. You see this phrase, life under the sun, repeated all throughout the book in some 26 different verses throughout these 12 chapters. And so we're going to consider, as these verses give us, three characterizations of what it is like to live under the sun. Three characterizations of life under the sun. But what is life under the sun? We'll consider what life is under the sun at the outset. 
The most basic way and most simple way to understand what the author of Ecclesiastes means by life under the sun is to see it as nothing short of life east of Eden. Life under the sun is life lived east of the Garden of Eden. If you will, for just a moment, remember back at the outset of Scripture, in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God has created man. He has breathed into him the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. And then as the Westminster Confession describes the covenant that God makes with mankind, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. As you know the story, obviously, Adam and Eve fail in disregard, and they eat of that tree. And in Genesis chapter 3, you find these words that we often skip over. It is God who comes and he places Adam and Eve east of the Garden of Eden. He removes them from the holy realm where he would dwell with them. And it's life east of Eden that is life lived in a fallen, sin-cursed, and death-permeating world. The curses which God had just placed and pronounced upon Adam and Eve in the garden are then drawn out in this life east of Eden. Life, as the author of Ecclesiastes speaks, life under the sun. And so that's the life that we are living in. We live under the sun. There are a number of ways Scripture will sort of um, parse out the different epochs of history that we live in. We can characterize ourselves as those living in the last days, the phrase that the New Testament writers pick up on. Or you can think about in terms of covenantal history, those of the Old Covenant and those of the New Covenant. But another way to describe it is simply life under the sun. And life under the sun is not what Old Testament lives separate than us, but life under the sun is all life characterized after the fall. And so the author in Ecclesiastes, or the Kohaleth, or the preacher of this text, is getting at what is life like not in the, uh, in the laboratory, some have described it. You know, you go and you're in a science class and you do the experiment and it always goes perfectly. But they always have, you know, the, the writing at the bottom and they say, you know, life's not actually like this or something to that effect. And when you're out in the real world, there's other effects. And what all, the author of Ecclesiastes is setting forth is that life under the sun often doesn't operate as we think it should. It's life in the real world. It's life east of Eden. Life fallen, sin-cursed, and death permeating. And so he gives us a new reality, a new perspective on the way we are to live. And you see three different ways here in this text that we'll consider this evening. First, it is life under the sun is life that is unpredictable. See that in verse 11. Secondly, verse 12, life, and more specifically, death, in the midst of life under the sun, is uncertain. And then verses 13 through 16, life east of Eden is also unexpected. So three U's for you note-takers. That took me a while to figure out, so be happy for that. 
So three U's. Life unpredictable, uncertain, and unexpected. First, verse 11. I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. From the vantage point of living under the sun, time and chance to the author seem to be the controlling principles. You see that again. Instead of those things, time and chance happen to them all. Life is unpredictable under the sun. And we see that in our own lives all the time, do you not? You see these examples placing and playing out in your own life. Maybe it's in the work place. You feel that you are the one who is most competent for that raise, or you deserve that other job, or you interview for a job and you don't get it, and you felt like you were. That's what the author is describing. It's life that is unpredictable, and what we think should happen, we run a race, we expect the fastest person to win. And he says that's simply not how life often operates from the vantage point living east of Eden. We see it not only in business, we see it with our families, and as I have thought much about these last few weeks, we see it in sports. And I was always thinking about some of the great examples. You know, you'll, you'll flip on a TV and you'll watch a sporting event, and they constantly use this phrase, it's a David and Goliath matchup. And that's exactly what the author is wrestling with, that David defeats Goliath in life, too. And as I was thinking about this, thinking of examples, and you probably who watch sports can come up with a million, but the first example that I thought of was the 1980 Winter Olympics. Remember that. I had the privilege of going to Lake Placid a number of years ago with family and going into that rink and watching the final third period of that event and hearing Al Michaels say, Do you believe in miracles? You see the Winter Olympics and the United States team filled with amateur hockey players lining up against the Soviets and beating them 4-3. to three. You see this all the time. It's simply unpredictable. And that's life lived under the sun. And not only do we see it out there in the life, but we also see it in Scripture time and time again. This same note where oftentimes in the Psalms you see the psalmist wrestling with this reality. The righteous are not prospering. And the wicked are. Psalm 73 is a great example of this with Asaph. He doesn't understand why are the righteous suffering and the wicked prospering. He recognizes that's going on in this life. And then, you know, remember the story when he goes then into the house of God and he realizes what the end of the wicked ultimately is. But sometimes we don't get that perspective that Asaph got. Sometimes we just wrestle with this reality. Why is it that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the strong? One of the great examples of living this way is none other than Jesus himself. The righteous figure living east of Eden. And things simply did not seem to go as we would expect. 
We would expect the righteous to prosper. And in fact, Christ comes and does the exact opposite. And so, the author is getting at, the preacher is telling us, don't grow frustrated and don't grow grumbling and complaining at the Lord because life is this way. This is simply how it goes. And any time that we are looking out and we see our lives and we are led to grumble and complain, it's none other than a recognition on our part that God is not reigning over this. Remember, I think it was a former member here, I could be wrong, but I think it was Jim Zimmerman who used to say in referencing complaining and grumbling that grumbling and complaining is always against God. And how true that is for us as we live, we constantly are growing and complaining about the circumstances we're placed in. And the author says, don't you see? You're living in a fallen world. This is what happens in a fallen world. And so rather than complain, recognize this is a fallen world. And not complain, but yearn for what we were made for. Yearn for that Garden of Eden, that better life, which is coming. But rather than grow in despair of the unpredictability of life, or rather than think that the fact that life is unpredictable for us lends to a failure to recognize God's sovereignty is not what the author is getting at. In fact, recognition of the fact that life is unpredictable is to lead us to the fact that God is sovereign. What becomes apparent in the mind of the preacher is not that life operates apart from the sovereign control of God, but that under the sovereign control of God, life unfolds this way. It is God who actually orchestrates and governs life to be this way so that we would depend on Him. The Puritan John Flavel, Flavel, however you pronounce it, he puts it this way. The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. Isn't that true? We always use the phrase, hindsight is 20-20. And there is some truth to that. When we look at our lives and we just don't understand why, God, are you doing things the way you're doing? And then 20 years later, you can look back and you see the pieces seem to fall in place. That's how God works. He works in an unpredictable way so that we would learn to depend upon Him and then praise Him when later on, or maybe we never realize why He did the things He did. It is, it is to lead us to praising Him. And so we may find out why God does this in our lives. We may not. But regardless, we praise Him for this way He orchestrates. Hymn writer William Cooper, friend of John Newton, has his own twist of this when he speaks about God moving in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform, He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. 
You see, what he's getting at is God is operating up here and we don't see him. And God is operating down here and we don't see him. Life is unpredictable. He moves in a way we can't understand. And so he says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Why? Because behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And so the truth is that God orchestrates, God moves in such a way that is unpredictable for us from the vantage point of under the sun so that we would depend more on Him. And one final wonderful example is the story of Job. He characterizes this so well. He literally epitomizes the author of Ecclesiastes' message. He is the righteous man on the earth and he suffers time and time again. And he looks around and he thinks, what on earth is going on? And what does he say when God removes his family, his friends? All he's left with, he doesn't know why God is doing this. He is simply left with this refrain, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's life under the sun. Life characterized by unpredictability. Secondly, verse 12, and most centrally to this passage, is that life, and most specifically, death, is uncertain. Verse 12. Man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So specifically in view, it's death that characterizes life under the sun. It's life east of Eden. It's life permeated by death and destruction. And you see that in the imagery of the fish being caught and the birds being trapped and the children being snared. In other words, one minute we're here and the next minute we're gone. That is life. That's life east of Eden. John Calvin draws on this in his Institutes. It's a somewhat extended quote, but I think it captures what we're getting at here this evening. That death simply, east of Eden, hangs over your head all the time. He says this, Embark on a ship. You are one step away from death. Mount a horse. If one foot slips, your life is imperiled. Go through the city streets. You are subject to as many dangers as there are tiles on the roof. If there is a weapon in your hand or a friend's hand, harm awaits. All the fierce animals you see are armed for your destruction. But if you try to shut yourself up in a garden, seemingly delightful, there a serpent sometimes lies hidden. Your house, continually in danger of fire, threatens in the daytime to impoverish you, and at night even to collapse upon you. Your field, since it is exposed to hail, frost, and drought, and other calamities, threatens you with barrenness and hence famine. I pass over poisonings, ambushes, robberies, open violence. You see, what Calvin's getting at is simply that we live, and at every moment, death hangs over us. And yet we block it out. The world tells us, don't worry about it. Worry about that next great thing. 
Don't worry about death. And he's saying, you can go anywhere. You can sit in your own home and think, I'm free from everything. And he says, why shouldn't the house crumble on you? Because that's life east of Eden. Death comes to us all. You see it if you flip back. Even, again, this is another of those central themes in the book of Ecclesiastes, verse 2 of chapter 9. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and to the unclean. It's death. Death and taxes, we should know that. That happened to us all. But specifically death. Death comes. Life lived east of Eden. But friends, we know that the world is simply not going to tell us this. The world does not want you to think about the reality of your life. Flip the TV on. Advertisements. For a fairy tale land that you can go off to and never think about what's coming. You see it. TV shows. Money. Sexual pleasures. Freedom. Autonomy is what the world cries out for. It's the next big thing. Just get caught in that which is vanity. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. All is like the wind. You can never get your hand on it. It's always going to be fleeting from you. Everything is vanity, he says, and striving after the wind. And so, when you go and you live in this world, recognize everything that the world offers you is like the wind. The minute you think you have your hand on it, it's the new model comes out. The minute you get on that vacation, you're thinking, what are we going to do next year? It's never enough. It's vain. It's vanity. It's fleeting. It's like vapor. You're always looking ahead. If you've read um, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he has this great interaction with Screwtape and Wormwood, the two demons, and Screwtape is the elder, and he's writing to the apprentice, and this is pertaining more to sin. How can you, Wormwood, get the world to sin, is his, is his goal. And this is what Screwtape says to Wormwood. He says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. End quote. That's what the world offers. A slow road to hell. Nothing satisfies. All is vanity. And you know what the author of Ecclesiastes, all he is saying is, recognize that. And we can base our lives, recognizing these realities, we can simply live in light of them. And so, the world is like screw tape to wormwood, trying to lull you to sleep 
They're trying to get you to focus on those things which you can never grab a hold of. And then one day you wake up, you look in the mirror, you've spent your whole life chasing those things. How many stories do you hear about this? Somebody wakes up one day, they look in the mirror, and they say, I've wasted. They look in the mirror, they see gray hair, and they start moving around the house, and their bodies are making all sorts of sounds and creaking and cracking, and they're thinking, how did this happen? It's the slow lull to sleep that the world offers you. And only if we read the book of Ecclesiastes, the answer is right here. They say, the author says time and time again, better is the house of mourning than the house of dancing. It's better to contemplate death, because what does death do? Death makes you think about reality. When is the last time you went to a wedding or to a party and thought about death? And the, and the weighty matters of life. As Christians, maybe. But when's the last time you went to a funeral and you thought about the weighty matters of life? That's exactly what Ecclesiastes is saying. It's better to be in that environment because you aren't being lulled to sleep. You're seeing death, as Edwards put it, stamped on your eyelids. Eternity stamped on the eyelids. And so... We must live in light of that. And here's Jesus' take on the matter if you turn over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Luke chapter 12. This is the story of the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. How badly we need to hear these words. Lay aside the foolishness of the world and be able to say with Paul that I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. You want a New Year's resolution? Count all things as loss. All things as vanity for the sake of knowing Christ. 
May that be our plea and our prayer to know Christ, to be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. The righteousness from God. And so as you think this morning, hearing about things that we are to discipline ourselves and our bodies as we go forth into another year. Jonathan Edwards was probably thinking the same thing when he wrote his resolutions. Some of you will have read them. There's 70-some, I believe. And he writes them, I think, at around age 27. And just, just, I want you to just get a taste of a few of them. This is what he says. Resolved that I will do whatever I think to be the most to the glory of God and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my life. Resolution four. Never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolve to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. And resolution 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I came to die. That's what he set before him. He contemplated his death. Because friends, when death is showing up in front of you, it changes the way you live. Just look at the last two years of American history. Death confronts the world, and the world goes insane. And for the Christian, it should be so different. Because, friends, Christ has conquered death. Christ has come as the one who was living in that paradise of God, heaven itself, and he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, and he came down to live, not in a garden, but in a paradise, not like what we were craving, but in the wilderness. Christ came, as Paul says, the last Adam, to live in the wilderness, in the life east of Eden, in order to conquer the curses which God had placed upon Adam and Eve in the garden, to move us who were under the curse to the garden paradise of God. Revelation 21 and 22. That's the sacrifice of Christ. He has come. And instead, not taking the curse of the tree and taking the fruit of it, but He Himself nailed to the tree in order to conquer death for us. That's the work of Christ. That is what shapes the Christian's view of death. We see death, it's coming, and we say, I'm living for Christ because He has conquered death. He has conquered hell and Hades. He has put all things under His feet. He has borne the curse in our stead. In my place condemned He stood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so death is now, we've seen an entrance into glory. We do not fear death. We do not fear the what is to come. The unknown, as the world says. We do not fear it. Because Christ, He Himself, has entered in as the head of the body. And we follow suit in our dying. And so, flee to Him if you have not come to Him this evening. Flee to Him. 
Repent of that sin. You are under the curse. The curses have fallen upon all. You lie under the curse. And the only escape, the only way in which death is not into the wrath of God is to flee to Christ, is to believe upon Him, is to trust in Him, is to place your faith upon not a dead Savior, but a risen and reigning Savior who has conquered the life east of Eden. So it causes us then to live for His glory in the midst of of this life east of Eden. Thirdly, and more briefly, life under the sun is also life that is unexpected. You get this story of that poor and wise man who helps the city against the great siege works coming from the destroyer. And at the end of the story, we would think, here comes the poor wise man, and the city heralds him out front and places all the riches of the nation upon him. And you know what happens? Life under the sun, everybody forgets about. Again, we see the fact that this is the way life operates. If you remember the story in the book of Esther with Mordecai and King Ahasuerus, when In chapter 6, the king, he wakes from the dream in God's providence. He awakens him from his dream. And he has his his servants read to him this story. And it's the story about Mordecai, who spares the life of the king. And the king says, whatever happened to this guy? Did we ever reward him for what he did? And they say, no, we never did anything for him. And although in the story, Mordecai is brought in and given these pleasures... From the king, that's simply not always the result of the story. And we know that from the way that life operates. And so the question then is, how do we live? If this is the way life is, it's unexpected, and death is uncertain, and life under the sun is unpredictable, how then should we live? One of the many great things that the Reformation did in bringing to light is a thing that I don't think we give much, if any, attention to, and as that is the doctrine of vocation. At the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church was simply saying to all believers, only the clergy, only those in authority, have any Christian vocation. And Luther comes and he says, no, 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 that's not the message of the New Testament. And one of the many things that him and Calvin and others come and reform is that Christians all have work to do. God has called each and every person who has placed their faith in Christ to live for His glory and has given you a vocation and a calling to live out in the midst of this world. And so life under the sun, we all have differing vocations, whether it's a CEO of a large company or whether you're a stay-at-home mom. That is what God has called you to. That is your life. That is where your place of worship throughout the week is to be entailing. That is your vocation. So that's how we are to live. We know death is coming. And so live for the glory of God where God has called you. Where has God called you? Doing what is good for His glory and doing what you love to do. 
That is what he has called you to do. And the results we leave to the Lord. Acts chapter 13 is this great verse that I love so much. It simply says this concerning David. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. That's it. That's how the New Testament sees David. The great king. This is how he's viewed in service to the Lord. He served God in his generation. May that be what we strive for. Not the accolades. Not the glory. But to serve God in the midst of our generation, wherever he has called us. Knowing full well that the results which come about are simply, more than likely, not going to be what you think they're going to be. But, God has promised far greater things for us in store. Namely, seeing Christ face to face. And so, strive as those servants of the Lord to serve God, whatever your age, whether you're 5 or 95, it doesn't matter. You have work to do for however long the Lord grants. It may not be long, but the Lord has given you tasks. You're never retired from the Christian life. You may retire from your employments, but you simply cannot walk into glory, as John Piper has often said, saying to God, look, in my retirement, look, me and my wife, we collected all these seashells in our retirement. No. How would we want to say that to God? He says, you have work to be done. There's no retirement. You have a vocation. If you're retired, you still have a vocation. If you're, you haven't started work, you have a vocation. If you're an infant, you have a vocation. God has called us, as those who are in Christ, to serve Him and to serve Him faithfully. And so whatever we do, as Paul says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. And I'll close with a brief story of a wonderful, faithful, godly man. And we can apply this, he was a pastor, but we can apply this to any of our lives, wherever God has called you to, in life under the sun. Hear these words concerning an old Scottish Presbyterian minister, W.H. Burns. His biography writes this, The simple records of a country pastor's daily life are uniform and uneventful and afford little scope for the biographer's pencil, interesting and precious as any work done on earth in heaven's eyes. It is the obscurest possible in the world's regard. Angels look down upon it, busy, eager, bustling, men heed it not. A calm routine of lowly, Though sacred duties, a constant, unvaried ministry of love, it flows on in a still and quiet stream, arresting no attention by its noise, and known only to the lowly homes it visits on its way, and the flowers and the fields it waters. The young pastor of Dunn was no exception to this. He preached the word, dispensed the sacred supper, 
warned the careless, comforted the sorrowing, baptized little children, blessed the union of young and loving hearts, visited the sick, the dying, buried the dead, pressed the hand, and whispered the words of peace into the ears of mourners. There is much here for the records of the sky, but nothing or next to nothing for the noisy records of time. That's the story of Christian faithfulness, striving to please the Lord. It's not going to be shown on the news. It's not going to gain attention to the world. Visiting the sick, visiting the dying, is not going to draw any attention, but it will please the Lord, and He will reward abundantly. And so, what better way than to summarize what we all love to hear, the great Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's our task, living under the sun. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we close out yet another day of worshiping you, we thank you that you have been faithful to us even when we have remained unfaithful. You return man to the dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Father, the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. So teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And, O oh God, may your favor rest upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We pray in the name of Christ, in dependence upon the Spirit. Amen.